Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to introduce you to today's guest, Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is a woman who I've admired and been learning from since 2019, when I first heard her speak at the Evolving Faith Conference. Since then, I have devoured her books, her podcast, and her writing in my own journey of faith deconstruction and decolonization. If you don't know who Lisa is, she's a leading Christian activist, author, and founder of the consulting group Freedom Road, a group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. She's a sought-after speaker and trainer and has written several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Her most recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All, is what we're going to talk about in today's conversation. Lisa shares how she spent three decades researching 10 generations of her family history through DNA research, oral histories, interviews, and genealogy. She exposes the brokenness that race has wrought in America, but then she casts a vision for collective repair. As Lisa says, to repair the world, we must first understand how the world broke. Listen in on this powerful conversation where Lisa Sharon Harper shares just how race broke her family. Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Andrea, it is so great to meet you and to be in conversation with you today. I'm thrilled and also really excited to be in conversation with your audience too. So let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. Well, I, I am thrilled as you know, as I was just fangirling a little bit with you, but you have played an important part of my story of my evolving faith of my questioning whiteness as my dismantling my whiteness and racism. Um, I mm-hmm. first heard you speak at evolving faith. Mm-hmm. The last one in person would have been, what was that three years ago? Two and a half. Uh, yeah, I don't, I think okay. it was 2019 or 2018. It was. I think yeah. you're right. Um, yeah. so I went there at the time when my faith, I was just starting to question things. I was very immersed in white evangelical church, just mm-hmm. starting to question, um, had just read Sarah Bessie's book had of course read Rachel Held Evans. So I took my 16 year old daughter to the evolving wow. faith and you were wow. one of the first speakers. And I remember it's going to get emotional, but I remember you saying like how you're, I don't know how many great, great grandmothers, but was a breeder and great grandmother. Yeah. Leah. We believe that that's the case for her. Yeah. And I just remember you saying that and just me and my daughter looking at each other. And at the time we're like, what is that? Is that, I mean, that is how we had just learned such whitewashed history and Mm -hmm. you just really began to open our eyes. And I remember reading the very good gospel after that, listening to your podcast. So you've just played a really important role in my own, um, my own journey and really coming to terms with truth telling and history. So thank you. And thank you. Hallelujah. (laughs) <laughs> Hallelujah. Yes. And thank you. You just, you don't know what lives you're touching. And so you really are. Um, so your first book, wow. like I said, that I read was a very good gospel, but you have a new book out last month. Yes. So excited. Fortune, and which is amazing. And um, thank you. I don't know why I'm like a little bit teary. I just feel like very emotional. I think it's just a very, just powerful full, full circle just to have you here and have this conversation in your book. Mm-hmm. Your book we'll dive into, but it's it's a heavy book. It's not like mm-hmm. a fun, easy read at all. Mm-hmm. And I was just finishing up some of it today and it's it's a lot, but mm-hmm. our histories, our stories, especially for African-Americans, indigenous people, it's a lot and it's heavy and whiteness like I am. Um, 
we've played a big role in that. So we're going to talk about all of that today, Lisa, mm-hmm. as much as we can fit in in an hour. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So can we start off? You just tell us a little, little bit about yourself, where, where you call home today, um, kind of what you do in your day-to-day life, and then we'll dive into your story. Well, I mean, honestly, who I am is my story, right? So mm-hmm. um, in fact, the whole book is, <laughs> it really, it, it goes 10 generations of the family all the way up mm-hmm. to me. And so in a lot of ways, in fact, before the book, I used to, people ask me, so who are you, Lisa Sharon Harper? I would always say, I, I can't talk about who I am without talking about my ancestors too. And um, so the reality is, is that, you know, I have been shaped by them. I am them in a very, very real way. DNA. I mean, I'm just, DNA is so profound their DNA is literally makes me who I am. It is in me. So fortune game McGee is in my body. Like that just blows my mind. You know, Lizzie is in me. I mean, actually I have pictures of Lizzie, my great grandmother. And um, there's actually a picture that's kind of floating out there of me speaking with her in the background, you know, Mm -hmm. up on the, on the large screen. And I saw for the first time in my life, I saw the resemblance between us. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, you know, so um, these are, these were amazing women and men, Henry Lawrence and, and Austin um, and Anita, um, you know, Reynaldo, they are all part of me and I am you know, so when I think back and after all of this research, I know that I am the descendant of a woman who absorbed among the very first race laws on American soil before it was America, when it was the colony of Maryland, Fortune Gay McGee absorbed the race laws and her life and her future and her fortunes were impacted because of that. And for all the generations that came after, I am the descendant of Henry Lawrence and who's mixed race um, and also very mysterious uh, childhood and parentage, don't really know who was his parent. Um, It all created um, identity confusion, especially around the um, reconstruction era where we were reconstructing our identities or really constructing them for the first time, Um, you know, since 1619, when we were first told you are nobody, right? And then 1662, when we were told, you are inherently slaves. Um, and, you know, so, so now in, in the reconstruction era, 1865 to 1870 something, Henry is really struggling to figure out who he is and, and others around him are struggling to, to, to identify him as one thing or another. And as a result, there's real confusion even over which Henry is which. And I have a feeling they're both the same Henry, just we don't know how to connect the two stories that are in chapter two of the book, right? Um, and I am Sharon, who um, was my, who is my mother, and was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and but she didn't just poof, you know, end up there. She she was there because as a child she went to a segregated school in the north that was de facto, not de jour, but de facto segregated, and actually segregated by gatekeepers in the administration that just told her you're out of district, but her next door neighbor who was white got to go to the white school, right? So she was taught very early on, you're less than, you're not meant to be anything. She is brilliant. In fact, she's an incredible writer. Um, And and she had me in the 1960s um, when she was trying to be a famous actress in, in New York City, right? Like, so she's an artist at heart. That's my mom. And she's also a freedom fighter. That's my mom. Um, My dad was a photographer um, for the black theater world, which is in part how he connected with my mom. And, you know, 
And so I am all of these people and more people I didn't mention who are in the book and others who didn't even, we're not, aren't even in the book because it was just too much. So, you know, who am I in terms of what I have contributed to this world? Um, I am a storyteller and I am a public theologian and, um, and I'm a consultant and a coach and a trainer all in the areas in the arena of um, narrative reconciliation, shrinking the gap between our narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we got here and how, and the gap between that and the actual truth. Right. Um, so that's our, that's our work. That's the work we do here on Freedom Road, a consulting group that I, I started about five years ago. We're literally entering into our sixth year. So excited for that and privileged to walk a journey with many, many freedom fighters who are out there today um, doing the work and leading uh, different people, communities, um, people groups and communities um, all toward the same goal, toward the beloved community. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always start, or you don't know, but I always start off asking my guests, tell me your origin story, because I think it shapes who you are today. And your book is, is your origin story. It's one of the most masterfully written origin stories I think I've ever read. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how many generations you're able to trace, how you weave in the history, the personal narratives and tie it back to today. I mean, it's just, it is just a beautiful work of art. Thank you You, so much. And this is not a book that you just decided last year you were going to write. You spent three decades, (laughs) right? You spent three decades researching 10 Mm. generations of your family through DNA, oral histories, interviews, genealogy. So when, what was in you that you wanted to do that for three decades? Because you talk about, especially for you know, um, for those that are colonized, their stories are so, are, have been taken from them, have been hidden, have been banished. It's so hard. Like this was a, a very hard task. So tell me yeah. how, what, got, what got you there to start doing that? Yeah. And that's why I did it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I turned to my mom, I actually called my mom up in 1991. Um, and I was working off Broadway, um, as an assistant, assistant stage manager at an off Broadway play with aspiration to be on Broadway one day as an actress, right. Or, or a director, whatever, Um, and, um, and I, but I was just moved in the course of my life at that time to know who I am. And I, um, I called my mom and I said, mom, okay, so tell me who these people are. Like, tell me who, who was grandpa, who was great grandpa, where I want to know the dates. I want to know where did they live? And I didn't even know names. She might've said it, but maybe she said it too fast for me to write it down. Cause in that first, I still have that very first family tree. We went back as far as my second great-grandfather, Henry Lawrence, and we only traced her father's line. So it tells you how patriarchal we were at the time. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, like I didn't even realize, but it's mm-hmm. real. And, uh, and, and we only had the dates of births and deaths and where they lived. And now 30 years later, just from trying to figure out who am I, that's really all this was, was just mm-hmm. me trying to figure out who am I 30 years later. I think we have like 1600 people on our family tree that have been connected with us through the work of a genealogist that we're working with. who has been amazing, fabulous. Um, and, and also through our own work, our own work really for like the first gosh, almost 29 years. And then over the last year, the genealogist has filled in like half of the tree, which is kind of amazing. And so for 30 years, yes, I've been doing the research, but it's really only been the last four years that I've been writing the book. And two of those, the first two of those years was just writing the proposal alone because it was a massive, I just didn't know how, like, how are you going to slice this cake? (laughs) 
<laughs> this cake could be sliced a lot of different ways. How are we going to slice this cake? How are we going to tell the story? So it took a long time to settle on how I'm going to tell the story. And then once I did, then it was off to the races. It was good. And, and in the midst of the writing is when I found the book's voice, you know, and realized um, that it's not enough just for me to tell the facts. I actually, it's important. And part of the story actually is how I did the search and, and the roadblocks that I ran up against and the frustration and, um, but also what I found in the midst of the searching. And it's important that I shared that because part of the story of people of African descent and other colonized people is the clouding, the twisting, the covering over, the erasure of our stories intentionally, um, according to public policies. It was, it was one more way of dominating um, the other. That was. And I wrote that down because that. you said that several times in your book. Like you kept asking yourself, who benefits from the erasure of our stories? Yeah. White nationalism. That's right. White nationalism. That was just very powerful and such. I mean, those of us who are storytellers, it's like, that's such a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising thing to you in your research and learning about your family's history? There's so much that was surprising, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back to the first chapter. First of all, that was surprising. I think the most surprising thing was to realize that I that we have a whole strain of the family that have been free in America, in the South, since the mid-1700s, and they were Black. And that was like, what? I didn't even know that that was, that that was a thing. Like, what? I didn't know it was possible. But it was possible. Um, and it was only, though, possible, only possible if your mother's line um, traced back to a white woman then it was possible. And that's what, that was the case for Fortune, the first um, American-born ancestor in my family who was not indigenous. And so she uh, bore the brunt of the very first race laws because she was born in 1687. That's just, what is that? that? That's 23 years, only 23 years after the first race laws in Maryland ever. Mm-hmm. According to those first race laws in, in Maryland, um, her mother if they had been in place when her mother had her, um, her mother would have been enslaved. Her white mother would have been enslaved and she would have been enslaved in perpetuity. But, you know, for the grace of God, about six years before Fortune was born, um, there was a, a funny thing that happened. Um, Lord Baltimore, the guy who was in charge of all of Maryland, the colony, he brought one of his servants over to this colony to, to be with him. He wanted to marry her, actually. Her name was Irish Nell. And Irish Nell was put up at a friend of his plantation in, in Maryland. And she fell in love with a man named Charles while there, a black man who was enslaved. And she begged her master to let, or, you know, um, Lord Baltimore to let her marry him. Now, he actually, some credit, he actually let her go and said, okay, you can marry him. But everybody warned her, if you marry him, they have passed a law just, you know, a few years ago that you're going to be enslaved if you get married to this enslaved black man. They're going to enslave you to his master until your husband's death, according to the law. And she was like, oh, no, you know, I love him so much. And, and, and Lord Baltimore will be able to change it for me. So she went ahead and got married under the law. 
And then he changed it. But because he changed it after she got married, she still ended up being enslaved and was enslaved until the day she died. Um, and her children were enslaved all the way through the Revolutionary War and then finally set free when the U.S. won, right? The Revolutionary War, she was finally set free. So that, so that was 1681. So six years after that, like they had, they had changed the law at that point. And so white women were no longer enslaved. In fact, there was no penalty at all for white women or their children. That was the law that, that, that Fortune was born under just six years later. But politics changed. There was a swing. And Lord Baltimore fell out of favor with, with the General Assembly of, of the Colony of Maryland. And all of a sudden, they turned on him. And it was ma mainly because of a rise in Black bodies in the Colony of Maryland because of technology made it possible for them to bring more Africans directly from Africa to the colony. So they were coming in droves now to be enslaved. Mm -hmm. And so as, as the numbers increased and the rebellions increased, then the laws began to clamp down. And so by the time Fortune is standing in that courtroom on the first page of chapter one in 1705, the, the law now says that if your mother is white, you cannot be enslaved. But if your father is black, you will definitely be indentured. Yeah. You will be indentured. And so, and if they were not married, which is the case in their case, you will be indentured for 31 years. If you were married, it'd be 21 years. So fortune was indentured until she was 31 years old. And indentured, maybe clarify, because I think we yes. have a romanticized notion of that. Yes. Indentured is yes. not a great thing either. No. <laughs> indenture mm -hmm. is basically the same mm -hmm. as slavery. You are owned mm -hmm. by your indenturing family. And they treated indentured servants the same as they treated any enslaved person. They whipped them. They, they hung and quartered them. They, they maimed them, cutting off feet and ears for infractions. Um, they, they did everything that you would have to do to keep a person bound, right? The only difference is that indenture has a time limit. Indenture actually comes with a timestamp. And when you hit that timestamp, then you're set free. That's what indenture is. Um, but, but what that was, but the way that they worked the race laws in the very beginning, they actually worked them so that it, it, it created incentive for white indenturing families to rape indentured women so that their children would then provide them with 21 more years of, of free labor. And that is exactly what happened both to Fortune and to Sarah, her daughter, um, I believe. And I, I believe that because I did a DNA you know, match mm -hmm. test and, and I found their surnames are in me. The indenturing family's mm -hmm. surnames are in me. There are a lot of surnames that are not. Right. There's is. In other words, there are matches out there with those surnames that we have identical DNA. And Fortune is your seventh great-grandmother. Is that correct? Yeah, seven times great-grandmother, which, which means that she was my grandmother who existed nine generations ago. Wow. Ten generations ago was her mother, um, Maudlin, Maudlin McGee. And she was an Ulster Scott woman. And what that means is that her family was a Scottish family that was conscripted basically by England at the time to move into Northern Ireland, the Belfast region actually, in order to plant plantations for the English on Irish territory. And so the Scots 
planted those plantations, settled the land. Um, and then there was a huge uprising against the Scots um, around the time that, that Maudlin and her husband, George, came over to America. I think they were trying to escape the uprising, actually. Um, and that's actually what, what created the, the first major flood of Scotch-Irish people into Maryland. Um, it was to try to escape the uprising of the Irish against them around um, 16, uh, 1682, 1683. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, you going back to Fortune, um, how she bore the brunt of the first race laws in this country, really. Mm-hmm. And so many of those race laws, the 19 or 1692 Maryland race laws, you list them out in your book, mm-hmm. but the church is what upheld those. Yeah. Like we, we know, like, you know, the church's role in upholding slavery and segregation, like, mm-hmm. but it goes way, way back to before oh, yeah. the origins of the origins. So yes, that was fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit into that? Yeah. So first you have to understand that the human hierarchy of belonging um, it, you, you, especially in the Western civilization, you'd have to trace it back to Plato. Um, Plato understood, or at least talked about people as different races um, in his book, uh, The Republic. And so he pontificated on what the races were for. And basically the races were established. He understood them to be something that ordered society. Different races would, would serve society in different ways. And then you flash forward about just like, 10 years and you get um, Plato's acolyte, Aristotle, who actually brings hierarchy into it. He talks about the barbarians, right? He talks about um, if, you know, if you're a barbarian, you're not actually um, created to rule. You're created to be a slave. Mm -hmm. He actually said in his book on politics, um, if you uh, have, if you have been conquered, you have demonstrated then that you were created to be enslaved, right? So this is not scripture. This is Aristotle. But 1000 years later, Pope Nicholas V, referencing Aristotle, I believe, um, told us, um, a family friend who came to go, you know, get a blessing to go exploring. Hey, you know, you can, if you've come across uncivilized land and unchristian land, you have the power to, um, to claim it for the throne and enslave its people. Um, that wasn't scripture. That was that the first page of the Bible says all people are made in the image of God. And every single last human being is called to exercise dominion in the world. That means stewardship of the world. Um, protection and cultivation of the world, agency to shape the world. Um, But what that Pope said was only the civilized are human. That's not scriptural. That's not that. No, that's Aristotle. So the Pope actually gave us with his Romanist pontifex, which was um, the religious foundations for what became the legal um, doctrine of discovery. um, And that shaped the world as we know it today, it actually gave the legal foundations for the age of conquest, the age of colonization. Um, it gave us North America, South America, Central America, all of colonized Africa, Hong Kong, Thailand. It gave us um, Vietnam. It gave us Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea. It gave us all of the world as we know it, the colonized world as we know it today. Um, and so with that bad theology, right? We wrecked the world. And then in that first colony, when they made that edict, they, they, they changed the law in Maryland and said, 
white women are going to be enslaved if you marry an enslaved black man, because of course that damaged the white male planters egos. And of course they were also the legislators. So they said, we're going to take care of this. Um, when they did that, um, they didn't realize they were unleashing a monster. And, and by 1692, they look up and they say, oh, we didn't realize this was going to happen. Planters were now forcing their Ulster Scott women and, inde- and indentured Irish women to marry enslaved African men and have their children. Why? Because it gave them free labor in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from the very beginning of this construct, this legal political construct that we have in America called race, it has been put in place to order how we interact with each other in the world and to pad and protect white men's bank accounts. And so much of your story, your family's story, especially the women, but the men too, I mean, is mm-hmm. filled with so much trauma. Mm-hmm. The rapes, the molestations, what you share about your own mother, how I even had hard times. I mean, this is a very privileged thing to say. It was a white person, but there were parts of her. I'm like, this is so hard to just read and and digest. So knowing that's your story, how, how did you handle that? Because I'm sure, I, I don't know this, but I'm guessing so many people, indigenous black people that have this trauma, it could be really hard to like learn these parts of their stories and, and own them. So maybe if you could speak into that a little bit, because that's something I just kept thinking when I was listening and reading your story? Well, I think that the thing that I've had to realize is that what it means in part to be African-American or of African descent in America, particularly African-American, having gone through the Middle Passage and the experience of enslavement in America is to live with layered pain. Mm. It's to live with too much pain to process really for any one person because there's pain after pain after pain after pain and and you you just get past one and then you have another one that comes and you really haven't had a chance to deal with the last one and so you know for us i think she just wants to be on the podcast right yeah she does (laughs) (laughs) for us that was the the case after enslavement So there's a couple of books that have really informed me. Um, And when I think about what it means to be African-American, I think about what I learned really from um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. And also another book, um, oh, what is it called? After, not Aftershock, Um, but it's actually, I'll, I'll get the name for it and I'll give it to you afterwards. But bottom line is that they talk about the reality of layered pain yeah. in the African-American experience that um, people of African descent in America um, have centuries, generations of pain that has never really been able to be worked through that is passed down from generation to generation. It's passed down in the same way that an alcoholic in the family, you know, passes down um, uh, dysfunctional uh, systems and habits within a family. That's just the reality. But for us, it's not just in a family. It's literally the society. It is like having an alcoholic society. It's having a dysfunctional society that always for since 1619 has pointed to you and said, 
you are, um, you are the unwanted child. You are, um, you are the one who's unwanted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not only that, but you exist, you exist to, um, to establish and protect and entrench the wealth of one of my other children. You know what I mean? So that's just some dysfunction. <laughs> it hasn't like, ended. Like, you, right. And you can't heal when you, when it just keeps happening. Like it that's keeps right. going on. Right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So this has got to stop. Yeah. It's got to stop. And that's part of the reason why I wrote the book and I wrote it in the way that I did. I didn't just write, these are the policies and da, da, da. I said, no, 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 we have to actually walk in the shoes. You're going to have to feel this. I want you to understand in your gut yeah. what the impact of these hierarchies of human belonging have done yeah. um, in our nation and also understand how we got here, that this was not just these laws didn't just come to be because they should be. They were decisions that were made at different decision points, always to establish, protect, and entrench white male bank accounts. That's the bottom line, always the bottom line. But always we were the sacrifice. We were the ones who were, who were thought, and not just us eventually, when we were set free, they brought in the Chinese right after us to literally live in the exact same slave cabins that we had just we had just um, uh, defected from. And they brought in the Chinese in order to work those same fields. And when they got established in their own communities, then they brought in Mexican workers, Latino workers, um, Filipino workers to work in the exact same fields. We have had an addiction. Um, we, and I say that generously as Americans, mm-hmm. have had an addiction um, to imported labor in order to do the work of establishing protecting and entrenching white male bank accounts. That is the bottom line. And we will and have exploited everyone. We have enslaved, we have um, maimed, we have lynched in order to keep in their place. We have killed, we have starved. We have prevented people from having a bathroom, you know, a, a latrine where they work so that we would be able to protect our bottom line. And again, I say our generously, right? right? As Americans, as a society. Um, but that is, that's our practice. That's who we really are. Right. Um, and, and, and also we have established laws that actually gave a leg up to white men and, and then hobbled, literally cut down the leg of black men and women and, and Latinos and Asian and Native American people. Why? Because there's an understanding of, of our world as like a zero-sum game. All of us can't have, according to that understanding, all of us can't be equally human. Somehow, for some reason, there has to be some human on top. Or, and actually, you know, what I've really come to understand about it is, theologically speaking, that the core sin of people of European descent who, who formed the laws and shaped this land, shaped the structures, is not actually to be the most supreme human being. It's actually to compete with God, mm. to be God. Wow. Wow. It's actually to say to God, I, white man, have the power to define the world, yeah. to say who is human and who is not. And then craft laws 
that define how the world works according to what I think of other people. And so it was. I have the ability to say that person and all people like them are three fifths of a human being. Mm -hmm. And so they were. Mm -hmm. And in this Christian nation, it's still playing out today. Like just, there's so many directions I want to go with this, Lisa, but I do want to talk about your faith journey within this, because I'm so curious how you got where you are today, because this is, I was surprised to read this in your story. Uh, you talk about your immersion into whiteness. You said by yes. 1982, my white evangelical youth group became the only space I felt safe. Yeah. I had to like do a double take. I'm I like, know. is that what she yeah. meant to say? Yes, it is. So yes. Talk about that. How you, because I definitely, oh, I thought that was my dog for a second. No. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's part of my story, but I'm a white woman. So I was just shocked that when you said I found one of the most safe spaces in white evangelicalism. So talk Mm -hmm. about that part of your story, how you got there, but then how you got out of it. Because I think that's, and you kept your faith and a strong, richer, richer faith because of it. Yeah. I think the reality is, is that when I got into high school, I mean, I had just come out of junior high where I had been bullied the year before. Um, by um, two white girls, both pretty poor, and um, who would bully me throughout the year in various ways and forms. And so when I got into high school, my main, my main objective was to become popular in order to be safe, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I, and I ended up just you know, deciding to say yes to a friend who invited me to her youth group. But I, was, I said it reluctantly because I thought, you know, that's not going to be popular. <laughs> that's jerk. It's going to be boring, like grandma. Blah, blah, blah. And it turned out that actually that's where all the popular people were. They were all right there. I was like, wow, this is, it was young life, actually, I believe now. Um, and, uh, and so, and it was in that context that I met Jesus for the first time. I never didn't know who never heard the word Jesus actually before that we went to church every other year on a good year. Um, and, and, and they were kind, I mean, the people that I met, there were kind, um, they were welcoming. Um, they really, in many ways kind of became like a second family to me and, um, in a, in a space where it was all white and me basically, um, and, you know, college bound classes and things like that. And then also at home, it was a blended family and that was having its own drama, you know? So it became like my safe place. Yeah. And, but it was a weird thing the day that I really that not very, very soon after I became a Christian before, you know, after I walked down the aisle and, um, you know, said yes to having Jesus in my life, um, very soon after that, I was told I had to become a Republican. And, you know, it makes sense, right? Because 1983 was the year. And that was also the same year that the moral majority was born. And right. And so the, the religious right was, was beginning to grow and gain um, foothold at that time. And it wasn't even adults that told me that it was just, you know, some of the kids who's like, you know, you know, you have to be a Republican. We weren't even old enough to vote. I don't know what we were thinking. We were going to vote. I went home and I told my mom, you have to vote for Ronald Reagan, um, you know, in the next election, which was 1984. And, um, 
And she looked at me like, who are you? And what have you done with my child? <laughs> my mom dated Stokely Carmichael, right? She was a member of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah. Stokely Carmichael is the guy who put his fist up and said black power for the very first time. She was like, you're not my child. That's right. This is not my daughter. <laughs> Bring my me daughter. Well, who are you? Where have you, what have you done with her? And, and so that actually, that created a huge, I mean, decades long division between oh. me and my mom and really me and my family. And so, you know, there was a way that um, I and my, in the way that I began to think of the world, I began to think of it like a white person did um, because I was so thoroughly immersed in white evangelicalism. And, um, you know, to the point where, and not, not in that same election, I remember coming home from school one time and um, so worried that my family was, you know, was going to vote for Mondale because Mondale according to the tract that I received as while I was coming out of church that night, that Sunday night, Mondale was the antichrist, right? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he was going to round up all the children and put us into work camps, according to that tract. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, you know, like I was really fully in it. Right. Right. Um, and fear keeps you there because you don't want to step out of, out of line. You're safe when you keep in the box and stay in line. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Fear kept me there. Mm-hmm. And, and also love kept me there because like I said, they were welcoming, they were loving. Um, you know, but I think my, my first um, inkling that all was not right was when, was when Jesse Jackson ran for president in that same election, 1984, and then again, 1988. And, um, and he didn't win. And I remember saying to my youth group leader, I want Jesse Jackson to win. And she told me, I don't think America's ready for that. And I, I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know very much. I obviously was pretty ignorant of what was, right, right. But why wouldn't America be ready for you are somebody like, why wouldn't America be ready for this man that makes you weep when he speaks? Like it, it was amazing, you know, to, to listen to the vision that he cast for America and that he got any votes at all was pretty amazing, but he got a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a contender for the, for the primary in the primary election. And so, but she was right. America was not ready for it. Um, my family experienced um, uh, this. I don't think this even made it into the book, but it made it into an earlier book that I've done. But my family experienced um, uh, racial terror of our own. Like my senior year, there were people who had crosses burned on their lawn. Um, you know, in our area, Cape May, New Jersey, my dad's friends had crosses burned on their lawn. And we had um, two kids. We didn't know it was only two. We didn't know who they were, but they were coming to around our house every night for a week, yelling at our house and word, go back to Africa. We don't want you here. My dad was the principal of of a high school in the area. You know, my mom was a registered nurse. I mean, solidly middle-class, um, go back to Africa. And it turned out that one of those people was a friend of mine from the seventh grade. And another one was, um, a member of my brother's class. So there I learned immediately. Don't trust white people. That was my senior year in high school. Don't trust white people. I mean, my mom had already told me, but I didn't trust her. And then I learned. But you trusted the church still, right? Or were you starting? To I was not? starting to not trust yeah, them either. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I never even told them about that because I didn't That's trust true. that they would know what to do with it. But then I still. Then I went into inter not university in Campus Crusade in undergrad. Yeah. Um, and I and I did. I mean, I I, tr- I trusted them enough. 
but you know what it was? I'm not sure I trusted them because I never really shared with them who I am as a black woman. Instead, what I did was I tried my very best to blend in, to become as white as possible, right? That in fact, if you look at, um, it's my favorite thing to do. I could even send you pictures of this so that you can show it in your show notes. But if you, if you look at my picture in high school, my, my senior graduating picture in high school and my senior graduating picture in college, you will see how much I tried to blend in in college. Mm. So I just tried to erase the difference in me yeah. as yeah. much as I could in college. You were working. I mean, there's so many things going through my mind. Like you're working to erase your own story. I don't want to own my story. I don't want to own that part of me. I am going to erase it and fit into whiteness as much as I can. And that's the only way that I could survive in it was mm-hmm. to erase it, right? Mm-hmm. To be as white as I could. So I became... You know, I, I started joining those pro-life marches. By the way, you know, I've done I've done lots of surveys now of um, of evangelical women of who are white and evangelical women of color, and everyone, whenever I ask them, when did you first start to realize that abortion was an issue at all, to the person, they always say it was when I began to go to a white church. <sighs> Just got goosebumps. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Black churches, Latino churches barely talk about this stuff. I mean, Latino churches do talk about it kind of underground, but it's not like, it's not a major issue. Black Mm -hmm. churches, it is not seen as like this major issue unless that black church or that Latino church comes out of a white denomination. Mm -hmm. Then, Mm -hmm. then you might actually hear about it, but not historically black churches, not historically Latino Pentecostal denominations. It's just not there. Mm-hmm. Um, they deal with it in another way, in a very human way. Um, they, they take it to the family. They take it to the community. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing, not a political thing. In the white church, it was politicized. And guess when it was politicized? 1983, mm-hmm. when the moral majority was born. It was born in order to politicize the issue of abortion, which most of the denominations, um, most Christian denominations, including the Southern Baptists, had just just a few years before, several times in a row for several years, um, gave the thumbs up to the Roe v. Wade ruling. Mm-hmm. Literally said it's a good ruling. Mm-hmm. It's a just ruling. Yeah. The Southern Baptist Convention. I know. I know. I mean, it is, you go into a little bit in your book, and I encourage listeners to get into the history of that if they don't know it, because... Mm-hmm. Like you, I was a save the babies bumper sticker marching. Like you just had to be if you were a good Christian. Right. And so yeah. I have listened, I've listened to long time ago, some podcasts or roundtables that you did on the abortion issue specifically that are very powerful that helped in my own evolution oh, of good. with that topic in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to that white evangelical space, the thing that really was hitting my mind was you talked about just the contrast of, okay, you have the, the white cross or the crosses burning in your yard. You're starting to fear white people that overt, overt whiteness we see as the danger, but yet so many of us get immersed in that falsified, I don't know, facade of love whiteness, I guess it within the yeah. white evangelical church. Yeah. And that's perhaps the most damaging of all. Yeah. And here's Purple. why. Yeah. yeah. Here's why. Because, and I like how you put it, the facade of love, because love, we know from scripture, is enduring. Love does not count wrongs. Love is, um, endures um, difference, actually. Love, love never fails, never fails. And yet, 
there is a point where that love is revoked in the white evangelical church. And it is, and for people of color, it is the moment when you reveal yourself to be a real person of color, mm. to think like a person of color, mm. to be concerned with politics in the same way that a person of color would, because politics literally shapes our lives. The decisions made by white people in the voting booth have the power to shape generations of, of possibilities in my family's life. So when I say that I care about who they're voting for, all of a sudden I'm breaking, I'm breaking, you know, we don't talk about politics here, oh, but wait a minute, didn't you just have somebody, you know, talk about abortion here? That's politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Politics is the conversations that we have about how the polis will live together and the decisions that we make. Yeah. And so, you know, since 1983, <laughs> Um, uh, the evangelical church has been held captive um, by the religious right that has successfully married itself to white evangelicalism um, so that you cannot tell the difference now to the point where the religious right or them, the, the con not even conservative, I don't see, but, but white evangelicals have, have full bore given themselves over to white Christian nationalism. Absolutely. That is the full marriage of, um, of politics that protects whiteness mm -hmm. under the guise of Christianity. Yeah. How, how have you not, how do you still have hope in your faith? How have you not just said, I'm turning away from all of it? I mean, because I think so many of us have really just seen the full colors of like the rejection, the, what they support, the hate, the, you know, the anti-LGBTQ, the, and we're just done with it. I mean, I'm not quite there, but it, it can be hard not to. So how have you held on, onto your faith, redefined your faith through all of that? I think that I've, I mean, I've definitely been through a process over like the last decade, I'd say, I mean, I, I, what I realized I've, I've had a bit of a, um, uh, experience really a transformation, transformational experience over like the last decade. Um, one big aha moment for me was realizing that Jesus was not an evangelical. <laughs> like Jesus did not call himself an evangelical. In fact, most of the people in the 19th century who we call evangelicals did not call themselves evangelicals. They just called themselves Christians, right? They were just Jesus followers. And it was in that context that they, that they launched the abolitionist movement, you know, for a long time, I would say evangelicals launched the abolitionist movement. And it is true, mm -hmm. but that's evangelicals as we define them today, they did not understand themselves to be evangelical. You know, um, David Bebbington and Mark Knoll, they identified them as evangelicals. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in the 20th century that they did that 21st century that, that, and that's taken hold. So, so, why am I protecting this thing called evangelicalism? Also, evangelicalism comes from a very particular um, situation that was being corrected in the European church. Now, it occurred to me that the Bible was not written in Europe, <laughs> that there is no, there are no um, European writers of the text, not one, none of the people who wrote the Bible were from Europe, not even Paul. 
who lived in Rome, but was not Roman. He was not, in other words, he was not European. He was Hebrew, a brown Hebrew living in Rome. To say that Paul was European would be the same as saying that Lisa, Sharon Harper is white because I lived in New York City at one point or Washington, D.C. No, right? I'm American, but doesn't mean that I'm white, Right. right? So I'm a citizen of the United States of America, but I'm not white. So there was an aha moment when I realized that this is actually a brown text. Hmm. It's, it's a text written by people who were colonized while they were writing it or under direct threat of colonization while they were writing it. Everyone, even David and Solomon, who were kings, were kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked by empires. Mm-hmm. And I realized that this all shifted with Constantine. Constantine brought the church into the halls of empire where it has lived from that point forward. Um, and, and, and now it is inside the halls of empire and in the lands of um, imperial lands, um, lands that were deeply invested in the age of conquest. It's, it is England and Germany and Switzerland and um, it, is, uh, it is France, it is Spain, who has actually had the ability to decide what this text means, Italy. But it is not where it originated from. They've had no say in what this text, doesn't that say something? It's right. like, wait right. a minute, right. what are you talking about? This text is not European. Right. Um, and so what does it mean then? My, my process has actually not been a deconstructing process. It's been a decolonizing process. Mm-hmm. My process has been, I don't want to just deconstruct the Bible and be left with a lump of nothing. I want to decolonize the Bible to see what was really there. Mm-hmm. And as I have, I have met Brown Jesus. Yes. As I have decolonized my read, taken the, the, col- the lenses of colonization off and been able to see the scripture for what it's really saying. I've been able, and how the original hearers would have understood it. I've been able to understand that this is a text about about the flourishing, God's desire for the flourishing of the image of God all over Mm -hmm. the earth. So that the kingdom, the rule of God would extend throughout the entire earth. And that all that God created would would be in yes mode. It would be overflowing with goodness and the relationships between them would be forcefully good, but it's the twisting of that understanding of of the gospel. It is honestly the Europeanification of the gospel, the, the lifting up and the centralizing of the theme of purity, which is not actually the central theme that you read from, from the the first page to the very last page of the Bible. Right. Um, That that theme is actually the theme of flourishing, the theme of wellness, the theme of, um, of justice, the theme of reciprocity and truth and integrity, right relationship, you know, between all things, wellness between all things. And you just don't get that. You don't get that out of the European version of the, of the, of the, of the, of the gospel. So I've been in a decolonizing process. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, I'll tell you this, my, and I'll, I'll end with this. My hope really does come from the reality of the faith of my ancestors mm-hmm. and the fruit of it, the fruit of their faith. 
Without their faith, we wouldn't have had the abolitionist movement. Without faith in God, slavery never would have been ended. Jim Crow never would have ended. Environmental justice would not be, uh, would not be something that we even have a category for right now. We have seen the power of God to cut the darkness, to limit the darkness, like God does on the very first page of the Bible, limiting darkness with light on the first day. We've seen it. And by the way, that limiting of the darkness with light, that's poetry. And it's written by people who have been enslaved for 70 years and are now coming out of enslavement in Babylon. So they saw it. They saw God's power to limit the darkness. And that's how we get Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. So I have hope because God exists. Yeah. What if God doesn't exist? I don't have hope. Mm. It's powerful, Lisa. So powerful. Thank you for that. And this whole conversation has been so rich. I just appreciate just your time and the emotion you put into this, because I do, I know this is, it's a lot to even talk about all of this and write about. We do need to wrap up. We didn't get into one, one thing I really want to talk about, but this is why people just need to get your book. And I'm going to end. So it is, it's true. And I mm-hmm. never listened to audiobooks, but because I was moving, I had to go back and forth between audio and reading. Ah. You do the audio, which this book, I so recommend it because you are reading it and you are mm. putting the emotion into it and the, the storytelling. So if there is a book to listen to with an audio, this it's this one. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. One of the, I'm going to just leave with this quote because I think it's something, another one that just really hit me and that I keep thinking You said in the book, race broke us. It broke us all. None of us will ever find peace until we fix it. Mm -hmm. Amen. Just wow. I want, I want listeners to soak, soak that in because race didn't just break down black indigenous people. It broke us all Mm -hmm. and all of our peace is at stake until we fix it. And Mm Later in your book, you go into talking about the reparations, um, repair, repentance, all of those things, because that is a big like, okay, well, how do we fix it? So mm-hmm. people need to get your book and read, mm-hmm. read that and listen to your Freedom Road podcast, because so many of your guests, even this past week's, the, the most recent episode, your guests really did an incredible job talking about, about the reparations. So I just- Oh, good. You listened yeah. to it. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank oh, you. I did. Um, it was I love amazing. your podcast. So speaking of podcasts, Lisa, tell us all the places that you can be found where folks can connect with you and learn more from you and hear, hear more from you. Absolutely. Well, you just heard about Freedom Road Podcast. Um, Freedom Road Podcast, you can get it wherever you get your podcast today. What we tend to do or try to do every time is bring together people on the front lines of the justice struggle in order to have the kinds of conversations that we have behind the scenes in front of the scenes, like for everybody to hear so that we can all grow and and go forward together. Um, You can also just reach me on, on social. I'm like on all the different channels, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, on, on Instagram and Twitter, it's at Lisa S. Harper. On Facebook, it's Lisa Sharon Harper dot page. Um, so you can you can find me and um, like the page and, and get all the good information there. So and of course, at Lisa Sharon Harper dot com. That's a, like a good one stop shop for everything. 
Yes, and we will make sure to put links to all of that and links to your book because on your on your website, especially, you have some really really rich, powerful videos, things that you recorded like last month, Black History Month for the for the book that I really encourage folks to go listen to as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. let me just say that there's a there's a curriculum, a book, basically um, a, a study guide for the book, and it's really powerful. So, and it comes with a fillable journal so that you can actually journal along with it. Lisa, thank you again. I just cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate you giving me giving me your time and being here. I'm just so so grateful for you and your voice. Thank you, Andrea.